This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. You guys hear me talk about this all the time, and I absolutely love their product, so I want you to know about Duke Tig Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you need a notebook that is already pre-lined, that you can just jump right in, plan a training session, take notes during a match, Duke Tig Brand has got you covered. And guess what? They also have waterproof products. And if you work in the coaching world, you know how unpredictable the weather can be from week to week, match to match, training session to training session. They also have apparel too. So I can save you 10% today by going to checkout at duketigbrand.com and use the promo code BROADWATER19, B-R-O-A-D-W-A-T-E-R-1-9 at checkout. duketigbrand.com, plan to be great. Don Williams is my guest in Season 3, Episode 3 of the On the Touchline podcast. absolutely love people who radiate passion for the game of football. And Don and I have a lot of similar ideas when it comes to how we think the game should be played. He talks about his attention to detail, 20-plus years of coaching experience that he has, and now what he's doing as it relates to recruiting uh, student-athletes to the collegiate level with Sports Recruiting USA. All that information is available in the show notes, so if you want to do a deeper dive and learn a little bit more about Don, and also connect with Don on social media, all the ways to do that are, uh, as I mentioned, in the show notes. This podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, I want you to hit the pause button right now. I want you to go there, leave a five-star rating, and a brief review about the show. Season three has been a tremendous success thus far, and I want more and more people in the footballing world to find out about this show. So I need your help. So go there now, leave a five-star rating and a review. Of course, if you like this podcast, feel free to share it with friends via word of mouth or out on social media. You can tag me at any time, highly active on Instagram and Twitter, and my handle is at soccercoach.com. JB. If you love passionate people who love the game of football, you're going to really like this episode. I hope you enjoy season three, episode three, and my conversation with Don Williams. Jason, I'm excited, I, and I appreciate you having me on, and um, always, always love to talk football with with those that are uh, like-minded, so I appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, Don Williams, tell the listening audience a little bit about your background and um, how you've gotten to where you are in your footballing journey uh, here in the U.S. Yeah, well, it's um, I, f- I fell in love with the game when I was probably eight, nine years old. I think I played baseball one year, and I hated it. It was way too slow, and and um, you know, started playing, and and um, then fell in love with with goalkeeping almost right away because I, I I sucked as a striker, so they they needed a goalkeeper, and so I fell in love with that, and then ended up playing um, at an okay level, did did all right, and later on got into coaching, and when I got into coaching because there were very few people who understood goalkeeping, I started studying it, and um, ended up. Gosh, I think it was in my C license where where I, they were doing a, a goalkeeping presentation and I was bold enough or dumb enough to speak up and said, uh, hey, that, that's not the way that, that I would do it. And he didn't know anything about goalkeeping, the presenter at the time. And he said, well, why don't you show us? And so I did a presentation and happened to be a couple college coaches there. And they ended one of them. Um, ended up inviting me to come on staff with her. Her name was, the time was Lisa Bestsellers, now Lisa Kowalski, and she was at Cal State East Bay. And so I became the goalkeeper coach at Cal State East Bay, and then that led to another 
deal with uh, one of my licenses. I rented to Troy Dyack, who was leaving. He was with San Jose Earthquakes, but had come off an injury and now was with a USL team called Bay Area Seals at the time, and they were in the A-League, and uh, ended up becoming the goalkeeper coach there. And, and so one thing led to another, and, um, you know, 22 years later, I had a college career that had led me from the NCAA to the NAIA to uh, junior college. I spent time coaching in junior college. And um, my last gig uh, was at a junior college up in the Sierra Nevada mountains called Feather River College. Nobody ever heard of it. Most people haven't still. It's a small town of about 5,000, but we did well enough that uh, the men's team ended up being uh, number two in the country and the women's team in the top 20. And pretty soon I had graduated, uh, you know, 92 players in eight years for about four and a half million in scholarships and sent them to some pretty good, pretty good schools, Penn State, UMass, Lipscomb, Florida State, and uh, New Mexico State, and, and, and some, some pretty decent programs. And takes me sort of to where I'm at today, Jason. I, I, one of the companies I was recruiting from was um, Sports Recruiting USA. And I was grabbing players from there and pushing them on. And when I retired from college coaching, um, the company asked me to come in and, and run North America. So, so here I am today building a network, um, about 50 of us now around the world, um, scouting top-level players to help place them in college. That's a uh, a winding road <laughs> to uh, to get to where you've gotten to, and I think that probably anybody in the footballing world understands the twists, the turns, the um, you know fortunate situations, right, right place, right time, um, sort of things where you know you're at a coaching course, and uh, at that time the emphasis on goalkeeping may have looked a little bit different than what it you know what the current landscape and the number of diplomas and courses and, you know, goal, goalkeeping specific coaching and, and whatnot that's out there. I'm curious for you. So um, we'll, we'll talk uh, a little bit more uh, about Sports Recruiting USA, but I, I'm curious what your youth experience was like uh, growing up. I know you're in California now, but um, tell the audience, you know, where you grew up and you'd mentioned baseball and um, similarly, uh, you know, had a uh, about uh, with baseball and uh, like you felt that baseball was a fairly boring sport, um, you know, uh, along the way. But I'm curious what the, the sporting environment, uh, especially when it comes to the football or soccer was like for you growing up. Yeah. People, people that aren't my age will not believe me, but so I grew up in the San Francisco East Bay area. Um, so we're talking, most of Oakland at the time, all of San Leandro, which is the next city over, is about 150,000. The town I grew up in, San Lorenzo, is about 30,000. Hayward, California, which had about 100, about 100,000. Um, Union City, which probably had about 75,000 at the time. So I don't know. We were talking about half a million people, easy, well, plus, plus part of Oakland, probably bigger than that, probably close to three-quarters of a million people at the time, 1974. And the entire league couldn't fill up a football field on opening day. We all lined up, and I remember we were about three-quarters of the football field. There wasn't much going on. Um, a friend had, of mine had you know, tapped on my shoulder and said, um, hey, we're trying out for soccer. Um, they got tryouts. You want to come? And I said, what's soccer? So I, so I ended up going um, and then fell in love with it immediately. And... Um, Come to find out later, he only invited me because every person he brought in invited, they gave a free soccer ball to. So um, that, that's the only reason he invited. So anyhow, uh, I ended up being coached by uh, you know former Englishmen and former Portuguese guys, you know former, you know expats, right? That uh, Irish guy and and so their kids had kind of grown up with the idea of the game, although in '74. You couldn't find it on television in America. I remember, I remember turning on the PBS channel and watching. Some of your listeners may know that name, Toby Charles, soccer made in Germany, and it was it was like a condensed German game, one a week, like four o'clock in the afternoon. I remember watching it in my room on my black and white television every Sunday. I would stuff, I'd be right there, watching it. And they condense a, an hour and a half match into an hour, 
and um, that's that's all the that was my football. That's that's what I had. That was my soccer, and, and I fell in love with it. And I had met a couple of friends where we were down at the park all the time, and that my first quote unquote big break. They were they were coming up with the first. We called them traveling teams. They weren't even called select. There was nothing specifically special about them. You either played in your own town league against your own city teams, or you traveled 25, 30 minutes away to Pleasanton, California, right? Or Livermore, California, out that direction. And um, I was on the first traveling team and I, I was discovered because a friend of mine and I were down at the park and he was shooting on me and I was just making saves. We were just having fun together and a coach happened to be out there watching us and walked up to us and said, you two are pretty good. Would you like to come play on our traveling team? And so we did. Um, and that's, that was the gist of it. Um, and it grew, it started growing in the seventies and in the eighties. And then in, in high school, we, you know, became our league champions and, and, um, you know, did pretty well. And then, uh, went to college and, and played a little bit at Chabot college. And then, um, honestly just decided to get married instead at 20 years old and started a life and, and kind of got out of soccer for a little bit until my kids started playing again. And then started then got into coaching, and um, that's what it was for me growing up. It wasn't very popular. Um, wasn't that many of us playing? Yeah. It sounds similar uh, to my story um, when you mentioned coaching. That uh, you know, thank God that my son started playing soccer uh, five plus years ago. That um, you know that was a pathway in for me as a coach and there had been such a significant break for me um, from college days and not even playing collegiately, but just being around um, our men's and women's, uh, you know, soccer or football teams, uh, the college I attended, um, there'd been a pretty significant break, you know, from finishing college and then to starting family and children and, and whatnot. And I'm curious for you, you know, there, there's that moment for all of us as coaches where, I think it, the light bulb comes on and, you know, we all say to ourselves, oh my God, I, I want more of this. Uh, this is, there's something about this that I love. And friends of mine have asked me from time to time, you know, what, what is it? And I, I think for me, it, it comes down to, you know, this really just this burning desire I have to help other people and to hopefully make their situations a little bit better. Um, it's the sport itself. Um, absolutely. 100% love the sport, love everything about the sport, the good, the bad, the ugly. And then it's the, I think the, the competition um, of actually competing and letting merit, you know, dictate what happens. And I wonder for you, uh, you know, when the, the coaching, uh, when you, when you entered into coaching, like when that, when you had that moment, or if you had that moment uh, as a coach, yeah, I did. I did. Um, you know, it's it's funny. When I first started coaching, my son was four, four years old. We had taken him down to sign-ups at four years old. Maybe could have been five. I think he was five. And I was sitting in the car, and I wasn't doing anything. We were going to go off to, to have a day with family, and my wife went in to register him, and here comes the president of the league out. My wife had opened up her mouth and said that I had played. And um, so he comes running out. He says, bad news. Your son's too young good news is we need coaches. So if you coach, then um, we'll let them play. And so that's, that's how I got into it. So they were only taking six-year-olds at the time and into the under sevens. They didn't have a younger program than that. My son was five, but he had his heart set on playing. So I, so I got into it and I realized almost immediately that, that, well, number one, I remember telling him, I don't know anything about coaching. I played, but I knew I was smart enough at the time to knew, to know that coaching was different than playing that, that as a goalkeeper I was just focused on me I was just focused on my performance I wasn't paying any attention to what the coach was teaching the strikers none I was just focusing on me so I knew I didn't know that much about coaching he says no problem we'll send you to coaching school we'll pay for it so F license goes through and I go oh this is interesting okay this is interesting I, I'm starting to get it and then when we started playing over the next year or two I realized that my playing experience did give me an insight to the game that all the other coaches didn't have because they grew up not playing the game, right? 
and I noticed that our teams were doing, our kids were developing and their kids weren't. And we were, you know, and I know it's just seven, eight, or nine years old and it's not that important, but we're squattering teams. And, and just little things like, you know, teaching them how to restart the game or, or kick a quick indirect free kick rather than wait for the other team to line up or uh, not, you know, to, just to be able to, to play in the flow of the game and, and teaching them moves. And, and I learned really early on that I, we called them personal ball skills were crucially important. And so back in the day before even Corver was coming up, we were teaching Corver type things to our players and our players were, were schooling other kids and we're doing really well. And, and it really gave me a fire for that helping other people and developing kids. And, and I think my passion, my light bulb came on when I had one young kid who was, he was challenged. He was, he was emotionally challenged and, and mentally challenged. And it was a, it was a different thing for him. And, and I remember coaching him in a game and him making first great receive and a great pass and the parents going bonkers, just, just nuts. And I remember sitting in a, a coaching licensing course where I was teaching it a few years later and I was telling the kid's story and I didn't know the kid's father was now coaching and was in the class. And he says, I don't know if you're talking about my son, but the story you just told is, is my son's story. And it made a big difference in his life. And, and he gave him confidence and he's a different person because of, of the way you handled him. And I said, man, this, this really is a way to, to change lives. And then my second epiphany came coaching in college. And I guess I was doing all right as a, as a college coach because um, Lisa bestsellers had decided to leave the program and moved to San Luis Obispo. And she said, would you like to be the next head coach? And I said, yeah, yeah, I would. This is really what I think I want to do for a living. And I said, let me just, I, I got to finish my bachelor's degree. And she says, it, it doesn't work that way, Don. You have to already have it. And I said, oh, crap. So I realized I needed to go back to school and I finished my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. And then that's what finally opened up the door into making it a full-time, full-time profession because it, as most of us know in the United States, it's not really. It's a full-time profession, 60, 70 hour weeks, and you, and you get paid, you know, twenty-five, thirty, $40,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can do better being the manager at McDonald's, you know, yeah. and work less hours and have less stress um, than, than you can being a college soccer coach or, or, or trying to figure out in what form – being a, having full-time employment in the sport coaching in what form that entails, right? Um, that's changed in the last seven or eight years, you know, with, with the advent of, of I got, you know, higher-level clubs, ECNL, DA clubs, you know, where coaches actually can make a living coaching a couple of teams. Um, but, but it wasn't that way 15, 20 years ago, for sure. If my wife were uh, a part of this called on, she would say that uh, we're all crazy and that um, <laughs> that uh, when uh, our, our, our maker uh, and, you know, whatever people believe uh, was creating us, that um, somehow we missed out on something um, <laughs> because everything you just said uh, 100% resonated with me. And that's exactly right. You know, when you're working crazy hours and, you know, um, early mornings in some cases, late evenings in a lot of cases, um, this, you know, sort of weird ebb and flow of seasons and you're constantly in it and consumed with it. And then you have a little bit of a break and, um, you know, she would tell both you and I, and probably the people listening to this, they were all a little crazy. (laughs) So, uh, God bless her for, uh, for signing up for what she signed up for, I guess. Um, I wonder what makes a good coach in your mind. Oh, wow. That, that's a good one. Okay, so here's what I always say about coaching. is A good coach is a teacher. I have watched sessions, Division One men's soccer training with an, 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 an all I will say is he was a U.S. international. I won't even tell you what years. I don't want anybody to know who it is. Very famous name in, in, in the annals of U.S. soccer. And he was teaching his players how, how to take a free kick and how to bend a ball and how to place a certain ball a certain way. 
and he would hit it. He'd hit the shot, and it was exactly what he wanted. And the players couldn't do it. The players couldn't hit it. And he started to get upset after the you know, 15, 10, 12, 13, 14th try of the players, and he started screaming at them, just do it like this, and then he'd hit it again. And they couldn't do it. And he said, doggone it, just do it like this. And he was getting infuriated and screaming. And you could see the players tensing up. This was not working. He didn't have the ability. He didn't, he didn't know how he did what he did. That's the bottom line. He doesn't know how he does what he does. He just does it. And, and, and he's worked at it enough time that the muscle memory's kicked in. And he can just hit the shot that he wants to hit. And he does, but he doesn't know how to teach it. And, and you know, the history of coaching is replete with Premier League level players, international players who have tried to coach and then failed miserably and realized very quickly they aren't coaches. They, they don't know how to relay the information. So I'm, I'm like opposite end of that, not that I'm the best or the greatest, but um, you know, I've been very fortunate to have players like Lindsay Dickerson, who you know I took at 10 years old, and then she ends up on the national team and playing for Stanford, winning a national title. Allie Kirshner went to Duke University and I don't know how many goalkeeper coaches have ever had two players playing against each other, Duke versus Stanford, in a national final. Now, most, both my girls were on the bench, granted, but still, they were the number two and in a national final, two of the best teams in the country at the time, and, 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 and both ended up, ended up doing, doing all right. And then you know, kids like Kamani Hill, my coach, who ended up playing in Wolfsburg in Germany, went to UCLA, and then went to Wolfsburg in Germany, was there for four years, an American-American in Germany for four years, and then played in the MLS, played for Colorado, and had an okay career. And I was lucky enough to see these kids growing up and to be a part of their development, their journey, and be able to pass on a little bit of information that I hope made a difference in their lives and, and help them get to the next level. And so, you know, I don't tell your listeners these stories to say, oh, I'm, I'm awesome, I'm great. I'm just saying that I seem to, at some point in my coaching, have a knack for for being able to pick the small details out in, in what makes a player a little bit better. Um, and and uh, I'll call myself a technical junkie. I'm a technique junkie. Look, I I was a goalkeeper back in the day when you I wasn't allowed to take my own goal kicks. It's like no, kid, you can pump the ball. That's all we're going to allow you to do. Hey, back, you take the goal kicks, and that's the way it was even at the professional levels back in the day. And go back and look at old 70s footage, and you'll see not that many goalkeepers even kicking the ball. And certainly on a pass back, oh, we could throw in the ball to me. And In fact, our kickoff play of the game was to knock it around, knock it back to me as a goalkeeper, and then I'd smash it down the field. And that's, that's the way it was. It was hit-and-run football. Um, route one, they call it, right? Very, very English, old, old English, 1970s route one football. That's where I grew up playing. And, and so as I became a coach, I realized that I suck. I'm not very good with the ball. I better start getting good with the ball. If I want to teach my players and I want them to respect me, I started, I taught myself how to juggle. My friend and I would go down and we would, as adults, we would play soccer, tennis. I taught myself how to hit the ball against the wall. And I eventually ended up because of my my son's journey which took him into england and and a trial at fc cologne in germany and and division one soccer i realized that that goalkeepers that that could play the ball with their feet were of high value and franz hook really is the one that taught me that and some of your listeners may know that name he's the goalkeeper coach of barcelona and bayern munich and Ajax and Manchester United and Dutch national team, Edwin Van de Sar, right? He was his coach growing up, but his concept was play 11-11 football, right? 11 v. 11. Don't, don't play 10 against 11. Bring the goalkeeper involved in the game. And so as of, because of all of that, and I experienced, I started to teach myself the techniques of the game and, and, um, and what the moves will look like. And, and I practiced them myself. And because I made myself go through that as an adult, um, I was able to teach, you know, I taught other players how to do that and, and I watched them become better and I watched them become better than all of the other kids in our area because, because I was working on techniques. So gosh, to, to summarize, being able to teach the game, being able to break down the game, being able to show players the little intricacies of it, sort of like a golf coach. I don't know what they say, like, you know, 
92 movements to a golf swing or something like that or 60-something movements. And there's all these little breakdowns to it. Well, which movement went wrong? That's what I need to know. It's not enough for me to scream at a player, stop hitting it over the top. Well, that's silly. He, he knows he's supposed to put it in the net. You know, uh, and then I hear coaches, uh, uh, you know, scream things like, uh, don't lean back. Well, heck, I can lean back and still drive a ball three feet off the ground. So leaning back is not what the answer is, or keep the knee over the ball. Well, I can put my knee sideways of the ball or back of the ball and still put the ball in the ground. So then what's the answer? So being able to break down for a player why they struck the ball improperly or a goalkeeper, why they've not made that save, and it can be a bunch of different things. In, in passing, in receiving, in, in the moves that they make. And it can be teaching the little intricacies of a fake or a feint, right, or, or of a movement. Or, look, if you just twist your toe this way a little bit, it'll make all the difference. And, and then getting that player to rehearse it again. So being that teacher and that student of the game, Jason, I, I think is, is, is really important. For, for a coach to, to actually break things down and study the game if they want to get that information across to their players. You said a few things there that I think um, certainly resonate with me as a coach in you know, aspiring to continuously be better at those things, right? Attention to detail. Um, you talked about being a technique junkie. Um, these little things that, uh, you know, repetition of, of movements, and the, the rehearsal um, that, that goes into those things. And I'll, I'll tie this maybe into my, my next question, and I can only speak for myself here, and I'm curious your experience, Don, that I think being a goalkeeper, um, you know, for me, I, I didn't play at a high level, but at least having some understanding of the goalkeeping position has actually made me a better coach. And I say that because I see the game differently than maybe say a number eight or number 10 or uh, a seven or 11 might see it. And for me, um, you know, I, I think as a keeper, it's this constant movement. It's this constant seeing what's in front of me, um, you know, telling people where I want them, what I want them to do and why I want them to do it. And um, I <laughs> found it really interesting when you were saying that, um, you know, goalkeepers not taking their own goal kicks. And, uh, you know, it, it, admittedly that if anyone watched our high school team or the high school team I was a part of this past fall, um, yeah, there, there were times where we didn't have our keeper take uh, goal kicks. And, you know, that, that drove me a little crazy inside. A piece of me died, I think, every time that that happened. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, you know, to justify it, so to speak, I would say that we had an incredibly inexperienced keeper. Um, I mean, a kid who literally had never touched a soccer ball before. So, um, you know, part of it was we, we knew where our demise, and this was going to be more of an off-season project than trying to, uh, you know, work through it during the season. But I will say this, the number of teams that we played against that their goalkeeper did not take a goal kick was actually pretty startling in 2019. And, you know, with more and more clubs, teams, high schools, whatever it may be, coaches sort of, uh, you know, buying into this idea that we don't necessarily have to smash it forward every single time on a goal kick and, you know, play a 50-50 ball if we have to, that, you know, we can actually build through the thirds and um, play more of a possession-oriented type of game, that I, I thought that was really fascinating. And there were some teams that, sure, absolutely, their goalkeepers were very much involved in the play and, um, you know, I think it was Johan Cruyff that said that, you know, your first attacker is really your goalkeeper and uh, it should start with he or she. And so I, I wonder if being a goalkeeper, you know, in some way contributed to your success as a coach. Oh, I think 100 percent. And you're right. Look, the, the best if I'm going to go to a professional game, uh, the best vantage point that I can have to enjoy that match is behind one of the goals. Second row would be, pre you know, second, second level would be preferable. And you get that lovely view of seeing the spaces and, and seeing the, the holes open up and seeing that, you know, hey, when the, you know, Pep Guardiola talks about the, the half spaces, right? That when the striker makes this movement, he occupies those two center backs. Now this spot opens up. Now we can make that run through there. And as a goalkeeper, you get to see all of that. 
um, I always say the most difficult position I think to play on, on the field is that is that is that eight. You you, you got to keep you got a 360 degree degree view of the field and it's impossible. You can't see everything all at once. You got to keep that head on the swivel. Next easiest place is the player, uh, the goalkeeper for the view, and then after that is is the seven or the eleven where you can have your back to the touchline and you can see the entire pitch. Um, nobody's getting behind you when you've got your back to the touchline. Um, and so absolutely being a goalkeeper, you have that vantage and that view and didn't know it at the time, Jason, certainly didn't know what I was seeing and I didn't know what was sinking into my head, but being able to read the game and see it develop. And then also knowing what beats you, right? As a goalkeeper, you learn how to beat, you know, what, what can beat you. And you start paying attention that if he, if, look, if he catches me moving this way and my feet are still moving at any point to the left and he shoots back to the right, it's Im- physically impossible for me to, after the ball is already traveling, stop, change directions in midair or mid-movement. And, you know, physics takes over at some point, right, where I have to stop, set my feet, and then move the other direction. It, you, you, you can't do two things at once, and you can't be going two directions at once. And, and learning those little things certainly teaches you how to teach strikers. And, and goal scorers, and um, watching your back line being torn apart, right? Watching your shape get, go, go wrong. Watching, um, you know, you're screaming at your back to squeeze in just a little bit because he's let too much space happen between him and the, and the next back over, and then they take advantage of that space, and, and you, you, you learn how to organize, right? And I will say that, look, athletically, I, I stunk. Someday I keep on threatening to go into my old freshman high school yearbook when I was, I don't know, maybe five foot nine, maybe, and I beat out a six foot three senior keeper. Why? It wasn't that I was, he was way more athletic than I was. I, I did have more experience than he had actually as a goalkeeper, and, but the one thing I did was never shut up, and I was constantly organizing. And and I would surprise my backs because I would sneak up behind them at times, you know, 30, 30, 20, 30 meters from my, from my 18, and I'd whisper in their ear, that, that number 10, I'm telling you, you've got to keep him on his right foot because he's a lefty, and he's got a hell of a left shot. And I keep on telling you, you've got to go ahead and push him inside. Put him on his right because he's never going to shoot, never going to do it. But just don't let him on his left. And I remember, you know, my back's, going, what the hell are you doing out here? Get back in your goal, man. <laughs> and, and it was that coaching that I had begun to do that didn't, I didn't know I was doing it. I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew is I wanted to win. And I knew that if I kept my backs organized and I kept them in a certain way, that, that we stood a better chance of winning. So no doubt, Jason, that, that growing up as a goalkeeper and basically the only position I ever really played helped me understand the intricacies of, of organization, of, 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 of how to put an attack together that would beat, a backs, beat the backs and then how the backs could be organized along with the midfielders in order to stop the attack. It, it helped me a lot, yeah. So the, uh, the attention to detail, um, I think, is something that coaches, you know, here in the States, um, depending on experience levels and, you know, where they've worked or whatever, they may have varying levels of comfort um, with that attention to detail. I'm working in an environment now um, with some coaches that are, uh, their, their native uh, home is England, and um, it's really fascinating to, to be around them. And I've, I've learned a ton um, just because they seem to be obsessive about details. And I thought I was obsessive about details before I started working with these guys. And I'm like, holy smokes, like they're thinking about things that I didn't even cross my mind at times. I wonder if that is where um, maybe we're being let down a little bit when it comes to the American game. Um, Now, you know, that's obviously a pretty big generalization. Um, And, you know, not to say that, I mean, I I do think there are talented and, um, you know, really some extraordinary coaches here in the States that were born here and, um, you know, really understand the game of football. Um, But there's also, I think, a wide variance of where people fall maybe on that spectrum. And 
I just wonder if that, you know, we see it with Pep Guardiola, we see it with, um, you know, other high level managers that this obsession with these de- the small details, body position, um, you know, thinking two or three steps ahead of the play before it actually happens, right? And, you know, the example you gave of um, basically telling, you know, your center backs or your outside backs where you need them to be, um, you know, there's a reason you're telling them those things, right? And you're thinking two or three steps ahead when that number nine might get loose and, you know, rifle a shot on you because you know that they're good with their right foot. They need to, you know, go to their left because maybe they're not as strong as, you know, with their left. I just wonder if, you know, whether it be coaching courses or just how we frame education here in the States, that this emphasis on, you know, this consumption of details is something that we maybe need to do better collectively. I'm just curious. Um, I do. I do. I t- and I tell you what, my probably for a lot of us that are in coaching, maybe the first attention to detail story I ever heard um, was, um, was about, uh, well, I tell you what, Franz Hook, the first time I ever heard Franz Hook speak, probably 25 years ago, I went to a, I went to a, a little seminar he had put on for a weekend, and he was talking about at Ajax, and this was probably a couple of years before Ajax won, won, won the European Club Championship, and, and I think they went on to be with Grameo maybe um, in, in the World Club Championship that year. And they were talking about that the first they teach their players how to tie their tie their boots. I don't mean to tie their boots. And so he said at the time, and I don't know if he still talks about this or not, but they didn't want the knot of your shoe anywhere near the instep because that knot, should the ball hit it, could change the direction of the ball by a millimeter, which could mean that it goes off the post squarely instead of the inside of the post and then in. So they were talking about, and he taught me, and I taught my players then, how to tie their shoelaces still tightly, but then wrap it around the ankle and then end up doing the final tie up around the ankle area so that it, so that we had a smooth surface. Well, you know, then Adidas and Nike and all these come out with these, with these concepts of the boot where the lace isn't is, is not exposed, right? But, but at the time, that, that didn't exist, and a lot of boots, it still doesn't exist. But I see players double and triple knotting their their you know, and, and they have a they have knot that's a, a quarter of an inch big, a half an inch big on their instep, and that ball is going to get changed. And then Franz also would talk about he's obsessive about ball inflation, right? That 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 ball needs to be inflated in training every time you touch it exactly like it would be in the game, to to the nth degree, because it does. And any of us that have played at any length of time know full well that a slightly underinflated or overinflated ball flies differently than a properly inflated ball. And, and the reaction of the ball is different and the spin of the ball is different. And then they talked, then he talked about when they would go to a, a European championship game. So if, for example, they were playing Barcelona in the, in the Champions League, that they would get a shipment of the ball that was going to be used at Barcelona, and this is back in the day when it wasn't a unified ball in the Champions League. It, every stadium you would go to, they would have their ball that they used, but they would find out what ball they'd use, they would ship it in, and then they would train with that ball because it flew differently and it felt differently. So taking attention to every detail and, and saying that everything matters, there's nothing that doesn't matter, even if it's a a quarter of a percent here and a half a percent there. So if you say nutrition is a 4% difference, well, that's 4%. And everybody goes, well, who cares? It's only 4%. Yes, but add that to the next quarter percent and the 1% and the 2%. And pretty soon you have a 10% advantage over your opponent. And anybody who's ever played the games at the highest level knows if you could figure out how to add everything up to a 10% advantage, that's massive. Mm-hmm. That's a massive advantage in a world of athletics, right, when it can be millimeters. And it can be hundreds of a second or thousands of a second. So the difference between a winner and a loser. I love it. That uh, <laughs> I think that could be a podcast by itself, Don. That's uh, that's pretty fantastic. Um, something that's been burning in my mind 
Uh, this probably started over the summer and I have no clue, you know, if you were to tell me five years ago, this would be something that would be something that I think about uh, so readily, not only as a parent, but now as a coach. And it really hit me with the high school group that I was with this past season of player pathways here in the U.S. And you work in a business um, with, you know, Sports Recruiting USA that potentially is helping young players um, along that player pathway and opening opening them up to opportunities. And, you know, you had mentioned some players that have gone abroad, which I think is fantastic, players that have ended up here playing, you know, professionally. And I'm wondering from your experience, um, you know, maybe what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong when it comes to player pathways? And how does that fit into the work that you're doing um, with Sports Recruiting USA? Yeah, it's interesting. My first real experience with the player pathway was probably my own son. So my, my son, Brad, who's now coaching at Southern at uh, Southwest Oregon Community College and um, up there, and he's coached at Cal State Bakersfield D1. He's coached at uh, Chico State D2. Um, coached with me for a while at Feather River College. Uh, helped run our men's team and helped help that team get to a you know national top five. Um, was probably my first experience, and and so he was supposed to out of high school. He was going to go to Sonoma State University, who had just won the national championship. I think it was Matt Bernard. I think was their goalkeeper at the time. He was a junior. They won the national championship. He was going to be a senior. So they were going to bring in my son, and they were going to redshirt him. Well, another friend of mine, Scott Juniper, who had, who had come over to the United States from England, had, had um, I think he's now the, well, he is. He's, he's the women's coach at UC Irvine now. Um, but he had just come over, and I had done some, some favors for him and helped him out, brought him into some camps that I was running. He helped me out, helped him earn a little bit of money, did became good friends with him. He says, Don, would, would Brad like to go over to England for, for a couple of weeks in the summer? I could make an arrangement. It was just a thank you to, to me for helping him out. He made the arrangements for a group called Team Bath. Team Bath at the time was taking a concept that they started this club from scratch. They were training on the grounds of the University of Bath. This was not a British Universities League, a you know, booster team. This was actually a team that was taking kids that had just been released from Newcastle, from Arsenal, right, from Southampton. These kids had just been released from these pro clubs, and they were giving them a second chance. And they were promoted twice in two years. They made it into the first round proper of the FA Cup, which is difficult to do. There's, there's stages just to get there into the first round proper. And they were the first side, you know, the full amateur side to have made it into this level affiliated with the university or affiliated with the university, but not playing for the university, if that makes sense. It's a complicated system over in England. But anyhow, Brad went over there for two weeks. He's, they, they liked him. He's a goalkeeper. He finished third on the fitness test for Pete's sake. I mean, Brad could go left, right, left, right, left, right, down to the end of the field and back, not drop a ball on the run with the ball 15 meters in the air every time and never drop it. I mean, his foot skills were better than most of the field players. And they go, holy crud. We like this kid, so they kept him, and and we started to watch this develop. And he had, I think, he had shut out Preston North End when Eddie Lewis was on the national team at the time, was playing for Preston North End. I think he had shut them out. I think he had, they had lost one nil to Bristol City, and and I think he had shut out Bristol Rovers, and then you know, got a call to actually go trial at FC Cologne in Germany when Podolski was still with the under 23s, and of course, you know typical you know they they brought him in afterwards and say you're not bad you're about what we have here but you're not german go home so he goes back to england and stays there for a while and then ended up playing in college and and so i had never seen or heard of this type of alternate pathway before and it worked out really well for him you know when when he came back from england he had contacted um Bobby Clark at Notre Dame was one of the coaches he had contacted. And Bobby said, look, I know who you're playing for. I know the level you're playing at. We would love to have you here at Notre Dame, but I have no scholarship money. If you'd like to come, you know, on no scholarship, you're welcome. And, of course, you know, I looked at the budget and said, that's not in the budget. It's not possible. And um, 
Bobby Clark ended up calling his friend um, uh, B.J. Craig, who was at St. Francis in Loretto, Pennsylvania, the little, little Division One school there, and I think B.J. is now at Oregon State. But anyhow, B.J. took Brad's sight unseen, no video, nothing, just took him on Bobby's word that it was a good level. I think B.J. made a phone call to his coaches back in England and then ended up bringing him in on a, on a scholarship, and he played there and, and did, did pretty well there. So that was an alternate pathway to what every other kid was doing. And certainly his whole career looked differently and his experiences looked differently than if he had just gone to Sonoma State, which was a, a great choice. Uh, Mark Kazimer runs a, a fantastic program there, and, and it was a great choice and a good coach and a good program, but his pathway was different. And, and so we've seen now over my 30 years of, of overall coaching, I've seen different kids come on and he'll take that pathway, you know, from UCLA to, to Germany to, to Colorado. Um, and, and we've seen other kids go, go, you know, over to, take a gap year, right? Take advantage of that gap year, go over to Spain to maybe, you know, Malaga City to the academy over there and then, then come back or, or go over to England to, uh, and maybe begin some studies and, and play and, and experience football in a different environment, experience soccer in a different environment. And I think there's a value to that for the right kid. Certainly, it, it doesn't have to be directly to college. And look, I've also had kids who had a kid named Ryan Holland, who's playing for Orange County FC now, who was gonna who was gonna go to to a school. I, I don't want to name the school, but they weren't doing very well. Division one school, but they weren't doing very well. Ended up coming to forego the scholarship that they were offering him to play D one because the school was struggling. Came to play junior college for me. We, two years in a row in the national top 20, uh, we beat the number one team in the nation at a junior college, then ended up going to Penn State. It was a much better choice than what the other school was. So we started talking about what is your pathway? Where do you want to go at the end of the day? And then what are the right choices that need to be made to actually get you to that point that you want to go? It's not the beginning of the journey that counts but it's the end of the journey that counts. It's where you end up. I love the, um, I would just say the, you know, some people would say maybe unconventional thinking there, but the ownership, um, not only with your own Sundon, but, um, you know, other players that you've worked with of allowing them to figure it out, to take risks, to take chances, um, you know, that there isn't, I, maybe that's part of the beauty and the mess of our current situation here in the States that um, there isn't this sort of very direct path. Um, I guess in some cases there probably is, but for, you know, the, to allow players to figure it out on their own and what may be a fit for, uh, you know, one player you coach or that I coach may not be consistent across the board. And I guess maybe this comes back to, you know, coaching 101 that you and I probably um, you know, as a, a cornerstone philosophy, I mean, yes, we have a team of players, but we have a group of, you know, however many, uh, 22, 16, 15, 20, 25, um, you know, players on the roster that are all different and they're individual people and that we have to treat them like individual people and not shoehorn them into situations or, you know, uh, give them sort of the fatherly advice of saying, well, you should go do that because so-and-so did that. Maybe, but maybe not. And I think I've gotten more and more comfortable with this idea that it's absolutely okay to go against the grain when it comes to figuring out a player pathway and helping them figure it out as well. And, you know, I love what you said about a gap year. Um, I would actually even offer that as just general advice for anyone coming out of high school and feeling this pressure that they have to go to college because it's the only thing that, you know, a parent or a guardian or a family member says, it's okay to hit the pause button, you know, from time to time and kind of reflect. And like you said, it's, what is the end goal? Okay. Now I need to figure out the detail of how do I get there? So I love that little, uh, little bit there. Um, tell folks about uh, sports recruiting USA. Yeah, it's, boy, what a crazy 
the project this has turned into for me. I never, I never envisioned this for my life. I really didn't. Um, Chris Cousins, um, it's a heck of a salesman, I guess. He talked me into it. First time he talked to me about it when I had just retired um, last summer. Yeah, last summer. Um, not, so summer 2018, I guess, right? He, 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 had, he had proposed this to me um, for, for me to run North American, and I really kind of – I listened to him, and I kind of sucked him off. And then my, my wife, to her credit, kind of prodded me, and she goes, I just have a feeling that you should follow up on this. And so next time Chris called me back, I said, okay, let's talk about the details. And, and it's a unique concept because it's an invitation-only agency. So we are not trying to compete with um, with 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 these online I call them online mass databases. I mean, there's there's companies that are collecting you know two thousand dollars a kid and they've got eighty seven thousand kids, knowing full well that there's only eight thousand spots available to freshmen coming in in the U.S. that they'll, they'll collect money from anybody. And I, I said I'm not interested in, in any way, shape, or form. And Chris is running and maybe the world's only invitation only agency. So you know, we have to see you. We have to like you as a player. Number one, it's about it's about football. It's about footballing ability. It's about your ability to actually be able to play the game at, at a level that looks different than the average kid that's out there. And then, second of all, it's about your your drive as a personality. I always say, jokingly but not jokingly, I don't want to bring in a kid and then place him at a school and then get that that kid gets that coach fired because it's the wrong kid, wrong situation, and the kid was interested more in, you know, uh, animal house lifestyle than he is about football, right? Well, it's just sororities and fraternities and, and uh, parties and all of that stuff, um, which does happen. I mean, it, and it happens to athletes. We can, we can all deny it, but yet I, I've been in the middle and seen it and seen it happen right in front of my own eyes. Um, uh, and any college coach has been around long enough to kids for, for drinking and, and or walking into a basketball game smelling a weed or whatever. I mean, it's, it's around there. It happens. And, and so we're trying to, to, to filter that out before they get to the college coaches. And then grades, you know. It really doesn't help, you know, bringing in a, a fabulous player. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. We were down in Florida last year, and Chris Cousins ca- calls me up on my phone. I'm watching one field. He's watching another field. He calls me up, and he says, You've got to see this kid. So I run over to the other field and I go, holy smokes. Is this an aberration? Am I really seeing what I'm seeing? It was one of the best wingers I'd seen in years. And by the time I'd seen the kids play a second time that weekend, I said, this kid right now today could start for Stanford. This kid is unbelievable. Well, Chris is on the phone texting one of his buddies at a big Division One school back east. And I said, slow down. Slow down. The kid's got a 2.0 GPA. He goes, how do you know? I said, I'm just guessing. And I said, not only that. He's been playing against adults since he was 12 years old. And he goes, how the heck do you know that? Well, he was a Latino player, and I was just guessing. And after the game, I went over and talked to him. I said, and so what's your GPA? And he goes, uh, 2.1. And I kind of look over at Chris, and I said, so let me guess. You've been playing in the adult Latin League since you were 12. And he goes, well, yeah, since 13. But, yeah, I've been playing against adults. My, and I looked at Chris, and so I – ended up trying to help the kid and it ended up not working out because he was just not interested in the education piece. And afterwards I talked to Chris, he goes, how do you know that? And I said, because that kid exists everywhere in the corner of America. The U S national team needs to know about these kids and they don't know about these kids. They're not paying attention to these kids that are playing in Latino leagues that are studs that can play, but their grades aren't good. You know, they, they need a different pathway. They need a different reason to, to want to be able to do it. They, they've been talking about soccer their whole life, and, this, and people are telling them, look, you're the best kid in our town. You're the best kid in the county. You should be in Mexico. You should be playing pro. This is where your life is going to look like. And, and they don't experience the educational piece of it, and, and they don't express, you know, they don't un- quite understand. And, and I get it. I didn't understand at 16 years old either, or 17 years old or 18, that education was going to be important, right? I, I could go get a job and, and, I, and I could work and I could make as much money as that guy over there. And he had an education and I didn't, and I didn't understand the value of education. So it's being able to identify these kids, Jason, that have all of the pieces put together and are college ready, that they are prepared. They, they're ready to make this jump. 
and then matching that up, of course, with the family finances, right? I mean, if a family tells me that they have um, $3,000 a year to spend on their child's education, that's completely different than if they tell me they've got $30,000 a year to spend on their kid's education. Um, and it's matching all of those things up. And then, you know, some kids don't want to be more than 50 miles away from home. It just, it just never, they're not prepared emotionally and socially to move away from mom and dad and live on their own and to, to do that. And then some kids can't wait, like my own kids. My kids couldn't wait to, to go explore the world. They, they wanted to see, my son at 17 years old was, you know, over in England. My other son at 17 years old was touring with a, uh, with a band. He, he signed to a record label at 17 and was touring Europe. And he, he you know, he wanted to explore. And so some kids are ready for that, some, some kids aren't. And, and you've got to consider, as you've already said, each kid as an individual, Jason, and what are they prepared for and what are they looking for. And then we decide whether we're going to sign that, that player or not, whether they're going to invite them into the agency. And if we do invite them in, they're going to get college offers. We've, we've, in 10 years of being in business, we've never had a kid who didn't get college offers. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna be them be able to then talk them through all of those offers that are laid out, and hopefully make an informed decision and not an emotional one. You know, some kids, oh my goodness, a D1 school offered me a full ride, and and they jump at the very first one. They just jump on it because either they're afraid nothing better is going to come, or they feel like it's what they always wanted. But but I almost equate it to 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 walking onto a car lot and going, oh, I've got money, I want to buy a car, and the guy says, well, I've got a convertible in, in green. And you go, well, I don't like green, and I wasn't looking for a convertible. I'm looking for a red pickup truck. Sorry, give us your money, you can have the green convertible. Well, <laughs> there are you know, over 3,000 men's and women's programs in this country. Now, if a kid has four offers, you, you can't tell me that maybe one of those other 1,200 schools out there aren't a better fit than those four. Shouldn't you have the option to walk onto a, a big auto mall and look at the Fords and the Lexuses and the Mercedes and the, and the Chevys and, and explore all of your options before you decide to, to, to make a decision that could change the rest of your life? And, and so that's what we do. So we had, last year we took over 1,000 positional requests between the men's and the women's side from colleges all across the country, except we were only placing you know, less than 100 kids worldwide. And so, you know, those coaches got our kids and the rest of the coaches had to still figure out, you know, where they were going to find their other kids. Because the problem a college coach has, Jason, is that, you know, even if they have an unlimited budget, like I think, I'm going to guess UCLA has an almost unlimited budget. When I was talking to them about one of our English players in, over the summer, he says, well, I'll I'll fly over there, Ryan Jordan. So I'll fly over there to look at the kid if, if I think it's the right kid. So it's like, wow, how many schools can just say, I'll get on a plane and go fly over to England to see a kid? Not very many. But even if they have that, they still only have a staff of three or four, don't they? So it means they can't be everywhere. They, they can't be at the tournament that's in, in South Carolina this weekend, and they can't be at the tournament that's in San Diego this weekend, and they can't be at the tournament in Texas this weekend, and they certainly can't be over in England at the same time this weekend, and they can't be up in Canada this weekend. And there's events and games going on all over the place. So, you know, when you look at college rosters, Jason, the, the Maryland roster, Sasha there, you know, he tends to have kids that are up and around his area. He doesn't tend to have a ton of California kids or Texas kids. However, you know, um, Washington, you know, if you look at, um, at, at, at what Coach Clark's doing up there, you know, it, it's, it's a very diverse roster. So he's looking world over, but, you know, he, he's got some different types of connections. And, and so what we're trying to do is tie those two sides together. And I often describe us as match.com. You know, I know what the school needs. I kind of know what the environment of those schools are. I know what the different levels are. Um, just because it's D1 doesn't mean it's a great program. Some D1s have won two games in the last five years. That may not be what that kid wants, even though it's a D1 school, you know. And then you've got D2 programs that are fantastic. Heck, when I had my junior college, we were regularly beating a couple of very good D1, D2 programs in the spring. 
from a junior college level. But it, so, so the quality of the football, the overall experience, all of those things, we're trying to match the player to the school to find the right fit so that the player at the end of the day is happy, the coach at the end of the day is happy, mom and dad at the end of the day are happy, and, um, of course, we're happy because all of these other people that, that are in our circle are, are also happy. I think I still have uh, four years of eligibility left on. I mean, not that anybody, <laughs> not that anybody hey, wants a uh, an old, you know, thirty-eight year old go- goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I I I could talk football with you all day, Don. You're, uh, you're you've been an excellent guest, and um, uh, would love to have you back on sometime and drill down on some of the things that that came up in this episode. Because uh, when you were talking about um, you know Latino players and had a very similar experience and tell this quick story here before we wrap up that um was at a coaching education course uh, not too long ago and um the players that showed up were children of um immigrants to the u.s and they had immigrated to the cleveland area in ohio and these kids could play i mean they put on a show um and they were the players we were using um to do our you know quote-unquote coaching as part of this coaching course and um, they did not, you know, they weren't used to a structured environment. So that was their challenge. But in terms of decision-making and creativity, and I mean, just actually had to like pinch myself at one point during the, the coaching course and go, oh my God, like this is, this is unbelievable. And, you know, the fellow coaches and I sort of looked at each other and were like, what the heck just happened? Like <laughs> the kids we coach don't play that way. <laughs> um, so right. that's a, another story for another day. But um, Don, if, uh, if people want to connect with you and uh, follow along with uh, Sports Recruiting USA and, and what y'all are doing, um, how can they do that? Yeah. So, you know, of course we're on, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, uh, Sports Recruiting USA. On Twitter, it's uh, SRUSA. Um, soccer. Um, you can you can get a hold of me at Don at SRUSA Soccer if you've got any questions. And uh, folks will never get a sales pitch for me. We're not just looking for everything, but I'm I'm constantly answering questions for parents um, uh, that you know uh, about the collegiate process, and we're we're more than happy to help them. Uh, they can also catch our our podcast in co- inside college soccer. Um, inside college soccer, we've done Bobby Clark so far. Um, Dan Abrahams, one of the top sports psychologists in the world. You don't want to miss that. We did Matt Barnes. We've got a project going with uh, FC Helsinger. It's a it, you, you can listen to that podcast and hear what that's all about. It's a pro team um, that was double relegated out of the Danish Super League on down to the to the Danish second division, and uh, now I think they're leading the second division. They were bought by an American ownership group that. Uh, um, quite, quite a few of them are integrated with the with the Golden State Warriors, um, so that's an interesting project. So you can catch us there on Inside College Soccer. We've got some some good episodes coming up, and um, yeah, any any other way you want to reach out to us, you can find me. Of course, uh, uh, I'm Don K Williams on on Twitter, and then uh, just Don Williams on um, on Facebook, and happy to answer happy to answer any questions anybody's got. Very cool. I will uh, be sure to put all that in the show notes. And uh, for anybody listening to this, make sure that um, you connect with Don. I know he's uh, he's highly active on Twitter and uh, see his stuff uh, all the time. So uh, good stuff, Don. Uh, it's been enjoyable having you on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast and um, definitely a standing invite to come back on uh, anytime you'd like, my friend. Jason, I, I can't thank you enough. I, I really do. I, I appreciate the opportunity to spread the word about um, the way that we see the game of football and uh, happy to come back on anytime. All right. Another episode of the On the Touchline podcast in the books. And my thanks to Don Williams for coming on the show. Don, um, welcome back anytime and can't wait to do a deep dive on uh, some of the many things that we covered in this episode. 
feel like we covered uh, quite a bit of ground. So good stuff as always and uh, wish you and your family well going forward and hope we can meet up in Baltimore here uh, in just a, a short while for the 2020 uh, United Soccer Coaches Convention. This podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms and uh, help continue to support the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. And make sure you subscribe to the show. New episodes of the show come out most Wednesdays and Saturdays. You're only going to get one episode this week uh, with the Thanksgiving holiday here in the States, but we'll be back on our regular schedule next week with two episodes. So look out for that uh, here in the coming future. Guys, thank you so much for your support. It really does mean the world to me. And reach out on social media if you have questions or ideas or comments or anything like that. Uh, always love to engage with listeners from the show. And you can find me at SoccerCoachJB on Twitter and Instagram. All right, guys, I will catch you real soon. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.